Hi everybody, welcome to the Education Council's podcast, Teaching Today. This is your host, Francesca Hilbron. Each month we'll speak to experts from the education sector for insight and discussion on issues and ideas. It's a podcast about teachers, with teachers and for teachers. Welcome to our inaugural episode of Teaching Today and we'll be tackling the controversial subject of the use of physical restraint on students. Some teachers say that they're unsure when to use physical restraint and others are saying they'd rather walk away from a confronting situation than risk getting it wrong. Parents are telling us that getting it wrong has this catastrophic impact on the child and their family and what's needed perhaps is a national program to implement the government's guidelines. So here with me today to discuss the issue is our four-person panel and I welcome Heather to start the introduction and perhaps tell us why this discussion is important for you today. Oh, kia ora. Um, I'm Heather Hinari. I'm the CEO of Skylight Trust. Um, this is a really important discussion for me, I guess, because of my background. I've been a social worker. Um, I've been a foster parent. I ran women's refuges and so I've had a lot of practical experience around working with children or young people at risk. I think there is a right and a wrong way of doing it. I think that at the time it's not always obvious for people and it's a really hard situation to be in and I think the more we discuss it and the more courage we give people to understand what they're working with and what are the options then the safer children and young people will be. Kia ora, I'm Mark Potter, I'm Principal at Berenpool School in Wellington. I'm also a National Executive NZDI member. I'm a trustee for the Autism Intervention Trust. I am a co-chairperson of Strengthening Families in Wellington City. Uh, also involved with the Inclusive Education Action Group and the Education for All Forum. So a lot of advocacy work there, which is why this is important to me. Because uh, Berenpool School is a very inclusive school. And so we either get children transferring to us or we have parents coming to us to ask us how perhaps their child could be better accommodated where they are and um, some of the most distressing stories we hear are around restraint. To me this is a, a very important discussion because the guidelines should actually eliminate most of the unnecessary uses of restraint and minimise it down to the rare occasions it should be used and it should be rare uh, because it is extremely traumatising for everyone. Morena uh, Koto, I'm Tom Haig, I'm the Deputy General Secretary of Policy at PPDA. So our interest in this um, began with the supplementary order paper which introduced the, the change to legislation um, to um, bring in this um, particular powers or restrictions on the use of restraint um, by teachers in schools. We um, had been prior to that involved in the development of the guidelines which were um, you know, it, was, it was a fairly good collaborative process, but we weren't aware that they were going to be backed up by a uh, change in the legislation. There wasn't a wide understanding of um, what, the, what the implications of the legislation would be and then how it's playing out in schools is um, also, it seems problematic. So we think it's timely to have another look at it. We understand that the government is interested in doing that and that's why this conversation is uh, you know, an important thing to be involved in. Kia ora koutou, ko Mindy um, I'm from Kindergarten Taranaki. It's important to me because I'm interested in the decision making process. I think the restraints about the, the manner of the child, the, the rights of the child, that it's done in a dignified way. 
but it's also the child doesn't come to the sector alone, they come with their whanau and with their ancestors that they travel with. And I think that's a really important aspect that when we're thinking about this, that um, the, the child, the whanau and, and the kaiako are part of the decision making process. So that's why it's an important to me to make sure that all of those elements are, are covered. Thank you very much. Uh, some very pertinent points raised there that I'm sure we'll get into with our conversation. I should note that unfortunately the Special Education Principals Association was unable to be here today. They're a very interested and important stakeholder amongst obviously very many people out there as you have alluded to. So all registered teachers in New Zealand are required by law to comply with the Code of Professional Responsibility and also obviously the standards for the teaching profession because they set out the expectations for uh, behaviour and practice in teaching. And with wellbeing and safety featuring so prominently in, in both of those documents, restraint is certainly top of mind uh, for teachers. And so Mark, I'd just like to start then with you. If we look at your school, <clears throat> where you've been principal for almost 20 years, I think, uh, you talked about how your school puts special education and inclusive education really at the forefront. Can you describe to us then what restraint looks like for you and your teachers and your community? I often say to people that restraint actually starts with restraint of behaviour of those who might restrain. Uh, and that's what the guidelines I think are about. And to me, that's the biggest strength that they have, is they have outlined some very good strategies to think about rather than use physical restraint. Uh, and it's taken a relatively short time for people to come to terms with seclusion. And I think we often uh, forget that that was also part of this body of work. Some uh, excessive behaviours were being done, but totally under guidelines at that time were okay. So um, for us, this is a good positive move. In our school, it's around having a, um, a culture within the school that is really focused on understanding the children. So if you understand the children, mm -hmm. you are far more likely to anticipate um, issues that might have previously been uh, an opportunity for restraint. Um, you know, it's, uh, I just heard a speaker this morning at an inclusive conference talk about a child that was extremely um, violent, aggressive, etc., but non-verbal. And it wasn't until they finally managed to calm the child down, they found a bee sting on the child's mm -hmm. toe. You know, if you your first thought is to restrain, then that's where you need to be restrained rather than the child. So that's where we come from. It's around creating a culture that understands the children. That can only be created by um, talking with parents as well. Most children who end up getting restrained aren't an unknown. They are children that will have conditions, syndromes, trauma, past histories, something that says there's an indicator here this child is going to potentially be uh, in a situation where they might pose a risk to someone else. If you talk to the parents, quite often they've got a lot of knowledge that can help you come up with strategies so you don't need to be in that situation. And quite often those things haven't been fed in, in, in situations where schools have had to restrain. Um, our school also has a policy of no one should be alone when restraint becomes necessary. And one of the first things that we do, should we need it, is to talk to the parents straight away. They need to know, uh, because by that stage they can also help us with that the cool down for the child as to whatever happened there. So this is very similar to your point, Mandy, that, that children don't come to our schools, our centres, oh. alone. So do you see any difference or similarities between what? 
that Mark's talking about in terms of the perspective of restraint in your community? Yeah, I think it's in early childhood this isn't something new to us. We have our own licensing criteria that we've used and we'd have our own policies and procedures and our own curriculum has covers this aspect and how, how we'd work with Tamariki. But from early childhood we'd see whānau are the experts. So it starts with, you know, like, like you mentioned Mark, when a child comes to you, you might know some history about them. And we'd be having those conversations with, with whānau about Know, what, what works well for them at home, what's perhaps the trigger that they've noticed, what strategies have they tried at home, what, what works there that we might be able to use. We focus on strengths and interests of the child, so we'd be looking at uh, what is that child's interests, what do they bring with them, what does that mean for our environment to, to support that, the learning of that child, but we'd also be coming from the aspirations of the whānau, what, what do they aspire for their children, what do they value with early childhood in, in our whare, it's about planning for individual learners but it's all about the holistic nature of that child and it's always the child first and about the mana, keeping that mana intact. I have a suspicion that we're probably thinking very similarly along those lines and we'll explore this a little Mm. bit more because we know that parents are very keen to strengthen their engagement Mm. with schools Mm. and there's probably some good best practice uh, models out there but Tom going back to your point then if we start right at the top with the legislation and the changes that were introduced to the Education Act last year. I think I know the answer to this, but was it a good move or have we got the law wrong? Uh, yeah, I mean, to, to rewind a little bit further, you know, as um, Mark and Mandy have said, it's really clear that no one wants to be using restraint when they become a teacher and there are lots of things that schools and teachers can do to minimise and uh, in many cases probably eliminate the use of it but there are occasions when for the safety of people in schools and early childhood centres that it is necessary unfortunately therefore a sort of framework around how that works is important and it's good to get that right in a way which um, is maximising everybody's safety and it's clear and also makes um, for professionals uh, who are involved in the care of children to be able to sort of know what it is that they can and can't do and I think at the moment the issue is that there is a discrepancy between what's in the Education Act and what's in other pieces of law, which means there is some lack of clarity here. Having a bit of a look at what other jurisdictions do on this, it's really interesting that places that are very similar legally and culturally to New Zealand have got quite a different framework. In Queensland and Western Australia, and I believe in other states in Australia, there is a much clearer establishment of the power of teachers to use physical restraint for uh, even what they describe largely as sort of maintenance of order in their classrooms. And in the UK, similar, in 2006, there was a big discussion about the use of uh, restraint in schools. Now, I don't think we necessarily would want to go down that track in New Zealand, but it is a, interesting that there wasn't a conversation really at all about what it was that we did want to use it for, mm-hmm. and that it came as, you know, a sort of out of the blue I'd say probably the hardest line in terms of the limits on teachers' ability to use physical restraint of anywhere that I can see. We've gone to the 
to the point of it can only be used according to the Education Act when there is a risk of serious and imminent harm to a student. Now that is, or to a person in a school, that's further than any of those other jurisdictions. It might be the right case, but it's inconsistent with what's in other bits of legislation in the Crimes Act and in common law, and that leads to confusion. Uh, yeah, and that's even acknowledged in the guidelines, which um, you know I think like Mark referred to before, there are some really good things in those guidelines, but the guidelines even say within them, oh look, there are, there are some other legal bases for you to use restraint as well, which is not helpful. <laughs> it's, you know, either these guidelines are clear and they tell you when you can and can't, or they don't, and at the moment they don't. Mm. So what about some of the comments out there in the media that, you know, this is common sense gone mad, political correctness gone mad, children are going to be trashing our classrooms, we need some change there. Mark, any comments around that? A lot of schools did have very good practices prior to these guidelines, which is where a lot of the better parts of it came from. What we've got is a situation a little bit similar to when the so-called anti-smacking law came in and there was a lot of um, scaremongering about what that meant. Parents going to be locked up because they smacked their kid on the wrist in the supermarket and it's never happened and was never the intention. But as Tom has said and, and quite a few people have pointed out that uh, those parts of the guideline about prevention, minimising etc are quite good. It's what do you actually do where they start to fall down and there is a conflict with other parts of law and um, teachers have been removed from rights under law every other citizen in the country has and that's got to be questionable. Would we remove police from any use of restraint and then send them out into the streets to work? Um, bearing in mind, I don't want police officers restraining me all the time either. Mm. But, you know, we've got to actually think, what are we trying to achieve with these guidelines? What should the legislation be doing? And it's just not there yet. Um, the Minister, Christopher Hipkins, has noted, and he noted even when it came out, I don't think this is right. I don't think we're going to see a, an upsurge in children wrecking classrooms. However, we must be cognizant that there are children right now that do. Could that actually have been avoided by other ways? It's, restraint is not the only way of addressing those kinds of behaviours. Sure. Uh, you know, and it goes back to everything that's been said by other people about knowing that child, knowing what's going on, making sure that you don't inadvertently create the situation because a professional could do that without meaning to actually kick it off and then we're treating the child as if they are the problem. So let's then on that note turn to Heather if we're talking about professional responsibility, professional judgment, the rights of young people versus the rights of people who are there to support them like teachers and social workers. From your industry where you work Heather, any comments around advice that we might give to our profession and where the law sits in terms of common sense and guidelines that support them? I think um, what both Mandy and Mark talk about are, you know, good, strong values and principles around best practice, which is what we all want to work by. The reality but is that we work in an environment where we have a lot of unknowns. For example, if I could just talk about um, the 10 years in which I was the Chief Executive of Women's Refuge, we would often have children arrive within a community um, and then be sent to a school the next day 
we would barely know anything about them, let alone being able to brief the school completely about what they had witnessed, what they had seen, the trauma that they had been involved in, the trauma that they might have witnessed the night before. Um, And of course, you know, we would try and make the best decisions for that child at the time. Often we would try and get them into school and normalise their lives quickly as possible in order to settle uh, an environment for them. We have very transient families. We have very, Mm -hmm. we're dealing with an enormous social issues out there. We have third generation pea babies who to this day have, some of them have gone undiagnosed and unsupported within the education system or within the health system. So they're not labelled with anything, <laughs> and but they're also not given any help. So they're floating within an environment with the stuff going on in their head and in their brain that uh, is Um, they're incapable of being able to manage. So in an ideal world, we would do all those things as a parent. We would be handing our child over to a school. We would be ensuring that they knew everything about what works for us at home, um, what doesn't work, how can we best manage the situation as, as a collective group to ensure the child's safety and best practice for our child. But the reality being out there is that there are environments where that doesn't happen. And, and so teachers and principals in schools are dealing with the unknown. I think it comes back down to um, best practice And I think the bit that was missing from me was a trauma-informed interpretation within the legislation. But I think that if we're going to be in in care of a child, we have a responsibility to be informed about this. We have a responsibility to ensure our teachers and our parents are well-versed on on what we need to do and what we can do as a collective group and get as much support around uh, the issue as we can. So we've heard that the guidelines are too restrictive. Does that mean they don't provide enough support and information, or is it something else, Tom? Yeah, I think it's one of those, um, uh, you know, like many changes in the education sector probably, and the wider public sector, there's sort of a big gap between uh, like the intention of the people meeting in offices here in Wellington and then what happens out when things are implemented out in the sector, and there's um, those... The, the gaps there, overcoming those is sort of part of the challenge for agencies and then for like professions like teaching um, to sort of be able to you know, make that stuff work. And yeah, but I mean, I, I think that with this, there's, there are problems of substance and also of implementation. Um, it's got both, which makes it harder. You know, really, I think what Heather's saying, and it's, it's completely right, is that, you know, teachers and early childhood professionals are at the sort of nexus of a whole lot of really complex problems um, and social and individual and family issues which are you know we we have responsibilities towards but we we can't always be expected to know all about them and solve them all perfectly so what is it that with the from the center we can do to sort of help to make that less complicated or to support people to make them to sort of behave uh, do the best possible thing in that really complex situation I don't think either these either the law nor the guidelines really do that. They don't really provide the support. So the support would be the sort of training staff and the the behaviour response service and things like that, which is, you know, it does sound like it is quite good if it it gets there, but the, you know, resources is limited and, you know, access to that is usually sort of after the fact. Does this make things more simple? Well, it doesn't because there's the inconsistency between different parts of the law. It doesn't because the the forms that teachers are required to fill in and the principals and so forth are Mm -hmm required to go through are onerous. It doesn't because the um, 
it's inconsistent with some of the practices that have been used in the past. And so, you Can know. we talk about an example of the inconsistencies between the laws? And I think one of them mm. is probably, I assume, the Crimes Act yeah. and the Education Act yeah, and yeah. what do you do in someone's... The property uh, one the is property a classic one, one right. right? So, you know, the Crimes Act gives a um, defence for people to stop someone leaving a place with something that doesn't belong to them. And, you know, a proportionate and reasonable way you're allowed to, if you see someone stealing something, you can stop them doing that. The Education Act uh, powers of restraint explicitly exclude that and the guidelines make it really clear that you can't stop someone who's picked up a laptop and walking out of a classroom with it um, in their bag. Many teachers wouldn't feel comfortable in that situation, they wouldn't want to step in and stop a student doing that, um, and that's fine, we can't force them to, to do that. But if they are confident enough to do it, and they've got to stand in the doorway and tell the student to put it back or whatever, and that they can stop them doing that, I think that it would be a reasonable course of action for that to be allowed. If they did this now under the current Act, they'd be at risk of, well, they would be breaching the Education Act, which would mean that they could face a complaint to the Education Council and a range of sanctions, which seem out of step with what the public would expect from you know, the teaching profession and out of step with what anyone else is allowed to do. If I may jump in there, um, it's that very uncertainty that is the big issue. Mm. So uh, it's very restrictive around what you're not allowed to do, but it's very lacking in detail what you can do. So what that has done is really, is, it's protected the legislators, it's protected the central government, but the people out in the field have no protection at all and this is one of our big issues that we have and, and another aspect of the Crimes Act is as Tom was saying is that uh, you, you can step in to prevent theft. Uh, you legally can do that but a teacher no longer can mm. unless they're downtown and it's an 18 year old it's a um, hardware shop walking out with something then they can so it's only in a school environment they can't. Under the New Zealand law there's I think the term legal term is um, you may prevent riot and that's where a person is smashing up an establishment or damaging property, etc. That's termed, I think, riot. And uh, you're not allowed to prevent a child smashing up a computer suite, is often the one that we are given. But what we're given, which I feel is a very, I'm trying to think of a nice way of putting it, um, avoidance behaviour from central authorities, is you may interpret it that a piece of flying glass from a broken computer could harm a child so you couldn't restrain. To me, that's dishonest. I, mm. I, I'm, I'm quite angry about that. You know, most of the computers we have in schools don't have glass screens anyway. So immediately they're telling professionals to use an inadmissible defence mm. should they be called into question. That should not be happening. When you're in the situation of having to restrain a child, and I've, I've had to do this um, on thankfully rare occasions, but you don't want to be balancing a law book in one hand trying to figure out which part of the act you're in at this stage whilst trying to prevent a child, usually from harming someone else. Often when I talk to people around these guidelines, you can go through and there's very good outlines of what kind of restraint is appropriate. You know, a distressed child, um, a child about to run on the road, there's some very good descriptions of those. There's very good descriptions of what you don't do, you know, anything that bends joints, um, pressing children to the floor, headlocks, you know, and tragically things that have been used in the past. But it's like children who come to me from other schools and you say, what were you doing? I was kicking, biting, hitting. What should you do instead? And the children say, don't bite, don't hit, don't kick. Well, that's exactly what we've got from these guidelines.
And I say to these children, well, what should you do instead? You told me what not to do, but what should you do? And those children often don't know because no one's ever talked to them about it. This is the, the discussion we've got to have. If you look, at, there is a section said, what do you do? Should you have to restrain? Now, there are only two action points in that section. There's a whole lot of other bullet points that aren't actions. The action points are, ask someone else to do it. So you, all you've done is you remove that problem onto someone else. The second one is call the police. I don't know why we have guidelines that is escalating restraint to a mandated enforcement force like the police. And I'm pretty sure the police don't want to be coming in, mm. tasing children, mm. handcuffing them or whatever. So we've got these guidelines in schools, then what about in early childhood? How confident do you think early childhood teachers are when they are represented with similar situations and how they can respond? Yeah, when we're talking about restraint and, and the guidelines and legislation, um, I'd have to say perhaps across the early childhood sector, do we understand, is, is it well understood? But I think it's a much bigger, you know, we've, we've got our own regulations that we've been working to and we've got Te Whareke and the Code of the Professional Response and Standards, the same as the primary and secondary do. But I think something that's unique to early childhood, we're quite diverse. In early childhood it's not just one, we've got different services that sit inside early childhood. What I would recommend to this is that the, the, perhaps some of the other under fundamental issues are, we don't have 100% qualified teachers. So, you know, that's a challenge for us. Currently it's 80-80% and when you haven't, whenever all teachers, and I'm not saying just because they're, they're qualified, the qualified teachers that they make good, necessarily good teachers, but when they're all not qualified, I would be recommending that perhaps do we have ongoing professional learning and support for teachers to support them with, with positive guidance that supports social competence and how quickly can they access those learning support services because that's often a challenge as well for early childhood and also around new graduates coming in um, although in early childhood you're working in a close and close proximity to one another it's not like a classroom with the only teacher in there in that room you could there could be three or four or up to five in, in some environment so you can support one another with that but if you're a new graduate where is their support to and around escalated behavior so let's touch on that point around training and support it's obviously critical to anybody in the profession uh, and to teachers Heather I'd like to talk to you briefly about that around Skylight Trust operates explicitly with a family-centred approach. Can you describe to us what that looks like and how that has positive outcomes for children and young people who are in difficult mm. situations? So often um, when we get a referral, we will have a parent or an organisation ring, it might be a health professional, who say there are particular problems with this um, child and they want the child to come to counselling or it might be to attend one of our groups that we run for children. And often the emphasis is put on the child, that the child's got the problem. What we start with straight away up front is we ask for a meeting with um, the parents. Um, or parent or caregiver or whoever's responsible for that child. We work with them around the relationship, what are the key factors with, with regard to the child's behaviour, what are the contribute, what do they see the contributing factors are and how do how do these things play out within the home environment and what are the and how do other people manage that within the home um, or within the school environment. And so we try and get a really big picture view of what's going on in the child's life and that immediately informs us or gives us a bit of a clue as to where some of the, the points or change points that we might be able to, to look at. Um, we might um, enrol that child into one of our 
um, dealing with change um, groups or, or going through tough times or so any one of those groups that helps children manage difficult situations and gives them the ability to use different skills to empower them with some skills to change that behaviour or change that way of communication. So we look at it from a, a much wider perspective, all with the intention of trying to shift the child from being the problem to the child a, being empowered to resolve and be in control of their own issues, but also um, empower the family and build resilience within the family to manage the situation in a different way. So it's never it's as simple as the child is behaving in that way. Um, and and I think that's something that we can all learn from. And, and parents, you know, manage every day, but also professionals manage every day when they're dealing with children. It's way more complex than what, what's just put in front of you, and mm. it's good for us to remember that always. Could I just talk on that, that one of the biggest issues that we face is rushing to judgment, and um, it can be done of parents, it can be judgment of the staff as to what's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you've got a child who actually has difficulty self-regulating doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad parent. Mm-hmm. In fact, quite often you find these are outstanding mm-hmm. parents, uh, and that's why they're so important to talk to. So, but this is human behaviour. We judge people quite quickly, and it's the worst thing we can do in this situation, because what you risk straight away is losing or alienating potential allies for the child. And as I, you say, often the child is presented as the problem, but sometimes it's not the child. It might be something environmental that is causing rise to this. And uh, I think there's a lot of MLEs are having to think quite carefully around this. And don't judge people, but actually, a bit of Socratic thinking here. So what ideas have we got? What can we try? What can actually lead to a difference rather than a judgment? Yeah, um, sort of just trying to think about this in the wider perspective that you guys are bringing, which is really useful. There's a way to sort of flip this around, which has been dealt with in other jurisdictions, and I wouldn't be surprised to see if this is comes here as well which is the sort of the, the flip side of when can you restrain to when do teachers have to restrain or when is there an expectation that they should have with the duty of care that teachers have towards students which comes through regulations under the Education Act and comes through the uh, Code of Standards of Professional Responsibility which you know they governed by you know there is an obligation to care for the well-being of students in your care now if a student is being you know, violently assaulted by another student the act clearly you know the regulations give the right for that teacher to intervene you know if there's that risk of serious and imminent harm but the the question which is and I think an interesting one which isn't dealt with at all in here um, and the guidelines has never really been sort of tested is there a duty on that teacher to intervene or the school and I mean I'd say possibly in um, ECE where kids tend to be more physical possibly that happens in a more regular basis and that there might be some sort of guidelines on that and secondary schools certainly I mean yeah there are kids who would be you know really hurt and and fights teachers whether or not they are obliged to intervene is a difficult thing to say on a every single teacher basis some of them might be clearly not up to it others would be yeah I'd be I mean interested to see whether um, you know the rest of you have sort of thoughts on how how that might pan out or whether we sort of are likely to see that happen in New Zealand. Yeah, that there is a um, perceived threat to professionals mm. 
uh, of a parent saying, why didn't you do anything? Mm. There's implications of punitive sanctions on you should you contravene these guidelines. Mm. The, the, the point I, I worry about is this lack of clarity we have, and I think lack of pragmatic reality mm. to them as well, will lead to paralysis of professionals which could actually result in quite severe injury of a child through lack of response. Mm. I've had teachers say to me, oh, we've, we've looked into it. The fact that they, the, the answer they told me, they hadn't looked very far at the guidelines, but they said, um, if a child's running on the road, we're not going to restrain them because we'll end up in trouble. And I'm saying, actually, mm. there you would be, yeah. quite clearly under the council yeah. guidelines, and every, everyone's yeah. understanding is you are still responsible for the safety of children. Yeah. So I, I totally agree. There mm. is this big grey area there. Yeah. Is there enough money on the table? Is there enough support for training? No. no. <laughs> no. So behavioural yeah, assistance, yeah. 95 million last year, another 69 million for the next four years. Yeah. We're talking 2,500 schools, 800,000 students. Mm. Mark? My school, we, um, as soon as the guidelines came in and UBRS, the training that is available to schools, we put a hand up and got in early before they started being um, put forward to um, schools that had, had restraint reports. We took a teacher-only day in order for our entire staff, support staff, teachers to be involved. We spent an entire day talking about what we already did. There was nothing new. It does call into question it, treating everyone the same. It's a big issue. Training everyone the same is going to put a lot of schools through wasted time, wasted effort, wasted resource. Uh, it, um, we believe in paying for our support staff to be at training, but most of them are waged, and so that's additional cost on the school again. And you're talking a, a, a professional part of our working force that is only waged at a very peppercorn rate. So the resources aren't there. And if we are going to alleviate this, there needs to be far more put towards it, we know that data and information can be very useful as long as it's robust and we know from some of our parents that they're very keen that schools are reporting the process and it's in a requirement in the guidelines. But we're also hearing on the other side that it's a very arduous process and we're not seeing the value at the other end. Heather, I'm sure in your line of work you've seen and done a lot of incident reporting. What's the value in it? If you compare it to, um, for example, death reviews and where we do reviews constantly on a particular practice or something that has happened, unless we actually follow through. I mean, I could write a death review on a child or a woman who've died from domestic violence based on all the other deaths that we've had in this country because the same factors come up over and over again, have been for years. And so unless we actually address the issues, those consistent issues, and we have a strategy to put you know, those issues in place to try and resolve, resolve them for the, for the environment, then we're going to continue to get the same stuff. But I think it's irresponsible to continually to put in legislative change that doesn't have the support package that comes alongside it in order to ensure that legislative change is applied with best practice principle. I, I think we do that all the time mm. as a country. We mm. continue to do it over Agreed. and over again. Yeah. I think there are things that schools can do. Um, for example, we have the Travellers Programme, which we run throughout the country, and we work in building resilient schools within um, year eight and nine. Now, that at the beginning of that process, we do a survey of all the year nine or year eights um, within the school. And that survey is uh, hugely informative to the school. 
and the fact that it can alert the school to uh, significant problems that are going on within their community. So if 20 students are in, uh, do the survey and out of those 20 students, 10 of them are reporting um, that there is um, their experience of violence was in the home, then you know within your community there may be an issue with regard to that issue um, and that you, you may require some extra activity that you can bring within to the school environment to help people get to grips with what's happening for children within their, within their lives and within their home life. Could I yeah, just sort of jump in to support that and that issue of the incident reports? I think um, it's a classic of the way that um, you know, central agencies work with schools of um, driving work down onto the front line um, without any cognizance of the uh, you know, resourcing needs that they cr that creates. Um, we see it so often. And it's a pattern that is, you know, from, from the central agency's perspective, it's like, okay, this is, you know, creating accountability and monitoring, which is really important for them for, for data and for being able to intervene. You know, that would be the justification. Well, it gives us the, you know, knowledge to go and intervene. But from the perspective of, you know, the front line, so, well, if the intervention doesn't come across as valuable, then that's you know a disincentive to, to bother, and then also if it's used as a sort of a, a, a punitive way, then there's even less reason to do so as well. And so, yeah, I mean I think that you know agencies need to be really careful with when they um, establish a, a system that says you know here is a great big form that you're going to have to fill in, um, which is super useful for data crunches up in Mataranga House. Um, and really, really not useful for people on the front line who've just been through a really traumatic incident, feeling highly stressed out. The school's got no doubt a lot to deal with, and then it's like, okay, sit down and fill out all these squeeds of forms. There is that need for schools to be clear on what is happening. With this gathering, you've got to be careful what you gather, and you've got to be very careful how you interpret it. So I heard a very unfortunate comment by a ministry employee. Thankfully, I don't think to work on these areas. But they had seen the first round of data coming out of the reports. And um, so you may recall the first one had that there was nine accounts of restraint used at secondary school. There was 220 in special schools. There was so many hundreds of in primary schools. And then a large majority of those were children below the age of eight. And the comment was, so what's wrong with those teachers? Can you see the complete nonsense? There's no logic in that leap that is made. And what I, I say to people is, um, people don't appreciate the work that has already gone on through each level of education. Mm -hmm. So starting in Mandy's area with the early childhood, the um, helping of children socialise, and, and we are seeing more and more coming into through from whatever society throws at the education system, we are dealing with more. People don't appreciate what early childhoods have already put in place. And then primary schools have to carry on that work. One of the reasons there is only nine reported at secondary school is that a lot of the kids that were restrained at a younger age have had a lot more happen than just have restraint. Mm -hmm. So by the time they get to secondary school, there is not that need. And teachers at secondary school are much more likely to be mm -hmm probably a bit afraid of restraining a big kid. And that's a good <laughs> point, and, and that's one of the things, it is in the, the guidelines, and it does say schools should develop their own policies. Mm -hmm. Every school, 
every early childhood, every secondary school is a completely new context. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be looked at. There's no doubt, as you go up through the age ranges, the risk to child and teacher escalates as the child gets bigger. There's a reason mm. I stopped having father-son wrestling matches about the age of 14 with my kids. I was losing. You know. <laughs> so those things have to be taken into mm. account. What does your centre, school, secondary school do in that situation? Now, if a school doesn't actually sit down and think that out, they are potentially going to do the wrong thing. And so they need to think, what are you going to do if it happens? And it is about protecting everybody, including the child, because a child who's behaving in that manner is a child who needs help, and that can't be forgotten. Mm -hmm. I think for, you know, when we talk about reporting, it it certainly is an element because it's about reporting what happened, it's also supporting the teacher, and for the early childhood sector, the whanau would sign that to say too, that we've shared that with them. But I think it comes back to your point, Mark, around sharing and and pooling resources with the kahuiakul, and that was the purpose of that for early childhood and primary and secondary, that cross-sector. And I think that when the kahuiakul, you know, when we talk about, but none of us have got any enough money, there's never enough funding. Um, but if we could use the kahuiakul to use some of, of that pooling around supporting with positive guidance and what we might be needing, but we've got to do better between the sectors and what, you know, the, the procedure that we might have that's actually with the individual plan that, that's actually working for that child, the significance of the transition to school process and sharing that and handing that over. Because it's no point that the, the new entrant teacher starting and has to build that relationship all over again. We should be passing all of that information over um, so they actually have a, a more of a seamless transition because at the end of the day it's about the child. We want the child to be successful. So we do need to wrap this up. Before I give you a chance to have your final words, I wanted to ask you, Mandy, if we're talking about that whole societal issue, which is another layer to this challenge, how well are we building resilience in our young people? I think in early childhood, I think that's something that could we do better? Absolutely. But I think in early childhood particularly, I think our, our te around empowerment, holistic family and community and relationships, that's what's, those are the principles of foundation of our document and all of our practices are, are, are based around that. But I think it's around, you know, we've talked about some teachers' attitudes, um, it's about our environment. I think it's how we're supporting children's interests and the dispositions and what we do within our environment to support the child to be able to self-regulate. And the key of early childhood is around building foundation skills around so for social competence. We all know that they're entering school and if they're socially adept, they're, they're much more successful at school. But I think it's the environment and around um, some services might be having, you know, set, set kai time and, and mat times. That takes the child away from their play and uninterrupted play and that often impacts on the behaviour. And that's all about the self, the child having the time to self-regulate um, and kaiako allowing the child time to be able to do that um, with, with uninterrupted play. So before we go, I would like to ask each of you, very briefly of course, to describe if you had the ministerial hat on today, what would be the one change that you would make to have a positive impact on this issue around restraint, Heather? Well of course, coming from Skylight, our key practice is around being trauma-informed and resilient building, so 
the fact that children uh, have the ability to learn resilient skills at a much earlier age than what we give them credit for. That I would, I would want to see a universal package around um, building resilience within all schools because I think it's good for the school, it's good for children, it's good for parents, and it's good to give our our children the skills that they need to manage tough times in their life going forward. Mark? I think there are three things. Uh, the first thing is uh, all the things that we've talked around this table that make a real difference to children most in need takes time. Mm. And it's something that we do not have in our schools, early childhoods, secondary schools. And we're constantly getting time stealers coming in with new initiatives, new assessments, etc. And hopefully we're rolling that back with some of the changes coming up. But there is not enough time and the capacity within schools for schools to be well prepared. So, so that's one section there. I think schools really need to look at what they are doing uh, and, and really give themselves a genuine look over and which parts are they, they really good at, which parts should they really have a think about. And uh, the third thing is I think the legislative parts of it are wrong. So uh, it has an impact back on one. Every time a new initiative guideline comes out, someone somewhere who's never been in a classroom, I suspect, comes up with an accountability process, which is problematic, means people are unlikely to use it, uh, very unhelpful in most learning situations. And these conflicts we've got, I mean, I'm even thinking about what about if a child isn't likely to injure an animal in the classroom. Now there's very clear law on the protection of animals that's not taken into account with this. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, so this homework has to be done yeah. and I think that can't be done by the schools, that's got to be done by the central mm -hmm. authority. I, I mean I think to echo a lot of what Mark said there, I think the you know, teachers' roles are ridiculously complex these days. There are so many competing demands and um, creating extra legislative competing demands that lead to further confusion that aren't well spelled out is, is just completely unnecessary. So, I mean, quite a narrow thing, I would say. I mean, I think we simply need to repeal 139AC um, and have another go at the guidelines that are linked to common law and the Crimes Act. And then the training and support with those that's adequate. I think for early childhood it's 100% um, qualified because you wouldn't go and put your child in, into primary school in front of a teacher that's untrained. So when we talk about the first three years or even less than that are the most crucial time in a child's life, why do we think it's okay to have an unqualified teacher? I think the, the cross-sector, uh, the kahuiako between early childhood primary and secondary, instead of seeing, perhaps, and I'm, this isn't always the case, but actually valuing what each sector has to contribute I think is significant because each sector shouldn't be starting as they move in, into those transitions. Um, I think additional learning support, I think the behaviour is often taking us away from our ability to teach and like it is a, it is a complex role and it has multi-layered and we're all, we're all time poor so we need additional support, better access to learning support and professional learning and development for, for Kaiako. And I think perhaps, um, you know, I think this yes, there still does need to be a form of documentation to support the rights of the child and the, and the whānau and, and kaiako. The child's at the forefront and it's at the heart of everything we do. And I think we do need to, as teachers, take a look at and not seeing the child as the problem, but actually what is our role in supporting to make sure that child has the best possible experience here.
And that wraps up this episode of Teaching Today podcast. I'd like to thank all of our panel members for their insight and their time, and thanks to you out there for listening. Please do join the discussion on our social media platforms and keep a lookout for upcoming podcasts. They'll be posted on our website, educationcouncil.org.nz.